Jim has a Bible if you need one, and you're going to need one. Today is Paper Cut Sunday. We're going to be bouncing around a little bit. Odd piece of trivia I happened to pick up this week. I was talking to a group of pastors online. We were having the, so what are you doing with Christmas this year? Because Christmas is on a Sunday. And so are you having service on Sunday? Are you having service on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve? Are you doing both? Are you doing neither? I don't know anyone who's doing neither. But, but funny thing that someone happened to mention, the, the calendar that determines whether or not December 25th is a Sunday rolls on a 28-year cycle. December 25th will be on a Sunday every sixth year, followed by the fifth year, followed by the sixth year again, and then the 11th year. So December 25th was on a Sunday in 2005. Add six years, it was on a Sunday in 2011. Add five years, it was on a Sunday in 2016. That was the last time it was on a Sunday. It's on a Sunday this year in 2022. It won't be on a Sunday again until 2033. I don't know what you do with that information, just a little bit of Christmas trivia. But on to, back to Romans chapter 8. When we left off last week, we were halfway through verse 17, and we'll pick up there this morning, except the sentence starts in verse 16, so let's back up and get a running start. The Spirit himself, Romans eight sixteen, bears witness with our spirit. Micah, I'm a little hot. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. When we paused Last week, we paused in the middle of verse 17. I called out, this is where we were going to be going. This would be the theme that we'd be undertaking. Because if you just glanced at the end of the verse, you can see where Paul is headed is the fellowship that we have with Christ in his suffering. Well, someone after service last week said, well, I guess next week's going to be a ho, ho, ho. I said, what do you mean? Oh, suffering with Christ. Yeah, that'll make a great Christmas message, Patrick. They were kidding, I think, but I, I can see how someone could get there because we tend to associate Christmas, Christmas with good tidings of great joy, don't we? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. The problem is that's the end of the story. We began our service, flip, flip over to Psalm 98, if you would. We began our service singing Joy to the World, one of my favorite songs, one of the most popular Christmas carols of all time, the most popular Christmas song in the United States in the last hundred years. It even beat out, baby, it's cold outside, which is not a great song. <laughs> but what we lose sight of 
caught up in the revelry of the season, Joy to the World isn't actually a Christmas song. We think it is, but it isn't. Psalm 98, I said it's Paper Cut Sunday. We're going to be bouncing around a lot. This is our first stop. Psalm 98 is the source material Isaac Watts used when he wrote Joy to the World, when he wrote the lyrics, the melody that we sing it to was written by Handel. But Isaac, wrote, uh, Isaac Watts wrote the lyrics in 1719. Look at verse 7. Don't do that. Look at verse 4. And we'll see the resonance. We'll see this is where he was starting. Shout joyfully to the Lord. Psalm 98, verse 4. All the earth. Break forth in song. Rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the song of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of a horn. Shout joyfully before the Lord the King. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. The world and those who dwell in it. What did we just read? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing, and heaven and nature sing. But we got to ask ourselves, is that the world around us this Christmas? Does that describe the world that we live in on any Christmas, the first Christmas or any Christmas since the first Christmas, as long as there's been Christmas? I don't think so. You're saying, okay, I'm confused, Patrick. This has what to do with Romans 8? Perspective. Halfway through Paul's letter to the Romans, we're halfway through chapter 8, which was halfway through the letter. What, is, what has Paul told us so far? What have we learned so far? Pretty much what he just got done saying. The universe is a mess. Romans 8.20, I know that you're not there, but Romans 8.20, Paul said that this world has been subjected to futility. God cursed it. It's fallen. It's broken in every way. Why? Because of our sin. Instead of trusting God, we doubted God. Instead of obeying God, we rebelled against God. We went our own way. We did our own thing. And because we did today, everything is a mess. Our lives are a mess. This world is a mess, and the only hope, the only hope for any of it, Paul's been saying, the only hope for any of us is Jesus. The only hope for the world, the only peace in the world, the only joy the world will ever know comes from one place. Look again at Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. You and I get to repeat that joy. Sing of that joy, celebrate that joy, because you and I have found that joy in the person of Christ Jesus. We found that joy when we surrendered our lives to him. We found that joy when we repented of our sin and asked him for forgiveness. We found that joy when we placed ourselves under his lordship and pledged to follow him. But is that what Psalm 98 is talking about? Yes and no. Let's keep reading. His righteousness he's revealed in the sight of nations. He's remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. What exactly is the psalmist talking about here? What's in view here? 
Jesus coming as a baby? No, the psalmist is talking about the second coming. Talking about Jesus returning to set up his kingdom on earth. How do we know? When do all the ends of the earth see the salvation of God? When does all of the earth, all of creation, with one voice, rejoice at the salvation Jesus died for? After he returns. One day every tongue will confess. One day every knee will bow. That day is not today. One day the earth will be filled with his joy and all of creation singing, but not yet. So far, it's just us. I was putting notes together this week. I googled joy to the world. First thing that came up was the 1971 update by Three Dog Night. Joy to the world, all the boys and girls. Joy to the fishes in the deep blue sea. Joy to you and me. Great rock song. I love me some Three Dog Night. Thing is, it has no basis in reality at all whatsoever. It's a rock song it's not supposed to. One day it will. One day things will change. One day every boy, girl, man, woman will know the joy of the Lord. The fish of the sea and the trees and the rocks and all of creation will praise the Lord. But so far, it's just joy to you and me. It's just joy to believers in Jesus Christ. Joy to you and me is as far as we've gotten. When Jesus returns, that's going to be when no more sin nor sorrow grows, nor thorns infest the ground. That's when he will come to make his blessings flow, not just to us, but as far as the curse is found, through all of creation. When Jesus returns, he will substantially, not entirely, but substantially reverse the curse. He will undo the effects of the fall, Romans 8.21. He'll deliver creation from the bondage of corruption into glorious liberty. He'll fix what's broken. And creation's response, once more to Psalm 98, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For he's coming to judge the earth. With righteousness he will judge the world and the peoples with equity. But that's not yet. Today sin and sorrow still grow. Thorns, in, in, in the Bible thorns are always a picture of the curse. Thorns are everywhere. Chaos is everywhere. And blessings can seem mighty hard to come by, even at Christmas especially at Christmas. Because everywhere we look, people and media and music, it's all conspiring, all telling us to be ho-ho happy. You don't get to be sad, not between Thanksgiving and New Year, it's not allowed. Fake it at least for the sake of the rest of us. Pretend to be happy, will you? But the reality is, here between the already of Christ's first coming and the not yet of his second coming, things are hard. For all of us, things are hard at least some of the time. For some of us, it seems like they're hard all of the time. And for many of us, harder still at Christmas. One day they won't be. One, thing's, one day things won't be hard because Jesus will be in our midst. One day things won't be hard, but today they are. One day, Psalm 98, 
He'll return to judge the earth with righteousness. He'll judge the world and the peoples with equity. One day, he'll rule the world with truth and grace and make the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. But that day has not come. 2,000 years ago, an angel talking to a bunch of shepherds out in a pasture said Jesus will bring good tidings of great joy for all peoples. And he will. But today that joy is only for some people, his people, you and me, and the people that we tell, the people who hear the gospel from us and decide to believe it. Meanwhile, the world waits. The world waits for the promise that we sang about this morning. The world waits and we wait clinging to the peace and joy that's not out there, it's only in here. We cling to the peace and joy within us while chaos rages around us. That's the reality of Christmas. The reality that Paul's reminding us of as we turn back to Romans 8, we dwell between the already and the not yet. Grace has been given, but justice is not yet enforced. Salvation is available, but the curse still very much operational. Joy and peace are present. Sin and sorrow prevalent. First takeaway this morning, if you're taking notes, he'll rule the world with truth and grace. It's true, but not yet. Heaven and earth aren't singing yet. Sin and sorrow abounding still. Thank you, Patrick. You picked me right up. Life is full of sickness and sadness and sorrow. I knew that when I got here. Can you please tell me something good? What's good is to not pretend that isn't true. What's good is to take off our Christian mask and admit, yeah, life is hard a lot of the time. But what's also good, if we keep going, what's also good is to keep in mind life won't always be like this. You and I live forever, and it won't always be like this. How do we know? Because point number two, joy has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. A baby has come, and he grew up to be a man who died on a cross for our sin. Every detail of his life predicted by Scripture, prophesied, foretold hundreds of years before it happened. Jesus came according to promise after promise after promise given in prophecy. So we know he will come again and fulfill the promise and promises and promises still waiting. Look again at verse 18. Back to Romans 8. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What's Paul saying? He's telling us, he's reminding us, even amidst all the chaos and confusion, guys, keep perspective. Jesus has come, just as he said. He's coming back just as he promised. One day the earth will receive her king. And the suffering of this life 
when Jesus returns, the suffering of this life will be swallowed up like a drop of water in the ocean. I like how Teresa of Avia puts it. Teresa of Avia, 16th century nun in the Catholic Church. She's the patron saint of headache sufferers. Can't make this stuff up. But she's, she says this, and I love it. In the light of eternity, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more than one night in an inconvenient hotel. I mean, that's great. Now, that's not to make light of the very real pain and persecution many in the body of Christ are experiencing right now here today. On the contrary, not to make light of it, but rather to emphasize it, even celebrate it. Celebrate it? Yeah. Because if you think about it, the worse this life seems, the worse, the worse this life is, the better heaven must be. Think about it. The longer and harder the road the, the, the more detours and potholes we encounter, the more thieves and murderers and accidents that happen along the way, the more spectacular the destination has to be to make us forget all of that. Second point, note takers, despite the sadness and the suffering that we know so well, too well, joy has come to the world. Not everyone has received the king, but we have. And because we have, we can look forward to joy and we can know joy. Wednesday night, folks, do you know our, our mantra, our watchword, our, our home base as we've gone through Isaiah? The things that will be true in the kingdom can be true for you and I today. The things that will be true when Jesus is sitting on his throne in Jerusalem can be true if we allow Jesus to rule and reign over our hearts. If we let our Savior reign, we can enjoy joy today and look forward to eternal joy tomorrow. And as we do, we will testify to the wonder of his love, the wonder of his love, the wonder of his love that we are, that he's done in us. That's what Paul is saying in verse 18. And it's a hugely important point. It's what keeps us sane a lot of the times. It's the same point he makes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. If this world, I'm paraphrasing, were all that there was, if Jesus didn't die for our sin, we're the biggest losers in the world. We're the greatest fools that ever were. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if this world was all that ever was, ever would be, then you and I are beyond dopey. But praise God we're not. Praise God Jesus did die for our sin. Praise God we have eternity to look forward to. An eternity where we will repeat the sounding joy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Glory, glory, glory to the Lord of hosts. Joy has come to the world. One day joy is coming back to take us out of the world. That's our second point. But I think there's a third point. 
something else that I think Paul would have us grab hold of this morning, not miss, consider, cling to. If you're back in Romans 8, if you're not back in Romans 8, get there. You ever, you ever, you ever play that Christmas game where you wrap up a, a present as tight as you can and you tape it more than you've ever taped anything in your life and then you put it in another box and you wrap that again and you put it in another box and you wrap that again and you maybe repeat it three or four or five times and then you pass the the, the huge multi-level dimensional gift around a circle and try to unwrap it with oven mitts. It, first time I played it was in Minnesota and we used mittens because in Minnesota you have mittens. Other places I've played it California and places, it's, it's oven mitts. If we only had verse 18, we might think of the suffering of this life as the wrapping paper in that game, something that, that we got to fight through, tear through, claw through, get through, battle through on our way to the gift that's waiting. The joy that's promised, the joy that's on the other side of, of that barrier. And it, and it sounds like what Paul is saying in verse 18, the suffering of this life is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. But if we scroll back to verse 17, go back to where we started, on the way to getting to verse 18, Paul makes it sound like the suffering in this life is more than wrapping paper. Verse 17, Paul makes it sound like the suffering of this life is a gift unto itself. Sounds like Paul's putting lipstick on a pig, right? But what if it's true? Because he talks like he thinks it's true. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed, in so much as, because we suffer with him, that we might also be glorified together. Joint heirs with Christ, that's huge. That, that's, that's unimaginably impressive, even more so when we remember what the author of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 1-2, Jesus is heir of all things. Everything belongs to him. Every blessing that there is belongs to him. All the glory that is given is given to him. And he turns around and gives it to us. All the blessings that belong to him, all the glory that's given to him, he shares fully and completely and freely with us, with, 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 with each of us. And this is important. It's not, understand, it's not like he takes it as inheritance and parcels it out equal shares to everyone in the kingdom. Here's one one billionth of my inheritance for you, and here's one one billionth of my inheritance. No, it's equally to all of us. You know, a candle doesn't lose anything lighting another candle. Jesus is the heir of all things, and so we too will be, each of us individually, every one of us who puts our trust in him, our joint heirs with him. And I get that so far that sounds like point number two. Jesus has come and he's coming back for us, but stay with me. Heir of all things means exactly that, all things. All things. The blessings we receive when he comes, the blessings we have today because he came, 
And the blessings, listen, the blessings that come with suffering while we wait. And I get that suffering in the name of Jesus is not a a brand new idea for most of us. The fact that suffering comes with the territory, if we're going to follow Christ, suffering is part of the package. We know that. We get that. 1 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 5.10, may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. John 16.33, in this world you will have tribulation, trouble, trials. Nothing new. We know that this is part of the package. If we, if, you, if, if we didn't know it when we were first saved, we've surely learned it by now. And if somehow you made it here this morning not knowing it, well, now you do because I just told you. We know suffering is part of the package as Christ followers. But how often do we think of suffering as the gift inside the package instead of just obnoxious dangerous, painful wrapping paper. How often do we think of suffering as the gift inside the package? We don't usually, because gifts are welcome. We like gifts. Suffering, not so much. Suffering, we think of as very unwelcome. But the Bible tells us, Philippians 1.29, suffering is a gift. For to you it has been granted, gifted, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering is a gift. Paul says so in Philippians. He says so writing to the Corinthians. Flip over to 2 Corinthians 4 if you'd be so kind. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We were here last year. And we talked about suffering when we were here because that's what Paul talks about here. We didn't talk about it in these terms exactly. I don't think we use the word gift. But it's very much what Paul says. 2 Corinthians 4, we'll start in verse 7. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be working in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you for all things are for your sake, that grace, having been spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Resonates with everything we've been talking about, right? It, it, it's, it's one big echo of Romans 8. Sort of, it, it's sort of like last week we, we lateral to Galatians to get an amplified version of what we were reading in Romans. Same thing here. Just an expanded version of what Paul is saying about suffering and, and, what, and what he just said. I'm not going to go verse by verse. But what he just said, it's a gift to suffer so that people can come to God. And it's a gift like three different ways. It's a gift to them, it's a gift to God, it's a gift to us. 
They get heaven, we get rewarded, God gets glorified. Win, win, win. It's a gift to be part of that. Also a gift, Paul just said, to suffer in the process. To endure hardship. To, 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 to endure persecution. To go through hard things to get to where they are for the, for the, in the hope of sharing the gospel with them. That's a gift. It's a gift to suffer right where we are, not traveling anywhere, but to suffer in our context so that people can see the gospel in us. Joy despite the pain that we're experiencing. Peace despite whatever circumstances are happening. It's a gift to let people see the gospel alive in us as we suffer. Let's, let's pause and we'll call that point three. The joy that's in the world today, such as it is, is us. The joy that's in the world today is Christ in us. The Holy Spirit ministering in us and through us. The joy in the world today is the joy we carry with us. The joy that allows us to share joy, to show joy, to bring joy to others who need joy even when we suffer in the process. When we suffer getting there, when we suffer being here, the suffering that's necessary to press on us so that joy would flow out of us, so the joy would be revealed in us. When we look forward to the, to the fullness of our inheritance, we see joy, unspeakable joy. But we have today, Ephesians 1.14, we have the down payment of our inheritance. We have the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, we said last week, is love manifested as joy. Peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness. But what's first on the list? Joy, the love that God has placed in us, is made manifest as joy. Joy despite circumstances. Joy despite suffering. And we talked a lot about all this last year, so I'm going to keep moving because there's another way that suffering is a gift I don't think we talked about last year. Point number three, the joy in the world today, such as it is, is in us. Point number four, suffering helps our hearts prepare him room. Suffering is a gift that helps us know Jesus better. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Trials in our life, I don't need to tell you, wear us down. We just read that in 2 Corinthians 4, but we didn't need to read it. We knew it. We live it. Trials in our life wear us down, and, and, they, and they can wear us down in a good way. They can chip away at the sinners that we were, grind down our natural selves, strip off learned behaviors, old sinful coping mechanisms. But while the trials of this life are wearing our natural selves down, if we yield to them, at the same time, our spirit-filled selves can be built, built up. Spiritual self, spirit-filled self, Christ-like selves. And that's why Paul Sounds almost excited. That's not true. He sounds ge he's genuinely excited. Writing to the Philippians. Look at beginning at chapter 3, verse 8. 
Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is far from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's all worthless. Anything this life can offer is garbage, Paul says, compared to knowing Jesus. There's nothing that can compare with knowing Jesus. And suffering, verse 10, fellowship with him in suffering helps us know Jesus, helps us understand Jesus even better. Suffering helps us learn Jesus. And that idea shouldn't boggle our imagination. Suffering is how Jesus learned us. Okay, maybe that does boggle our imagination. What do you mean Jesus learned us? Learn to understand us. Wasn't Jesus all-knowing, even as a man? Yes. But Scripture also says, Luke 2.52, he learned wisdom. He grew in wisdom. Luke 2.52, he grew in wisdom and stature. Even more provocatively, we read in Hebrews, he learned obedience. How? Through suffering. Go ahead and flip over to Hebrews 5. Hebrews 5. Why did Jesus come as a child? That's going to be our subject Christmas morning. Short answer, to fully identify with us. Jesus had to be human to die. We're comfortable with that. But he had to be fully human. And to be fully human, he had to suffer and learn and grow. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 8 again, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Jesus knew what obedience was, obviously, before the Incarnation but he also learned it the same way that we do. He learned it by choosing it and by suffering for it. Where did Jesus learn obedience? Our reflexive answer is, well, at the, the, the cross. Jesus obeyed the Father and went to the cross. Yeah, but I would argue that the cross is where he practiced obedience where he demonstrated a skill he'd already mastered. I think Jesus learned obedience in the garden. I think Jesus learned obedience in the wilderness with Satan. And in between those three years, I think he learned obedience, suffering a thousand other assaults and abuses and indignities, all of which collectively taught him, prepared him, the author of Hebrews says completed him or perfected him 
to fulfill the ministry that God set before him. Suffering, suffering in this world, is what gave Jesus complete understanding of the human condition. Suffering as a man gave him the experiential knowledge of human weakness that he needed to sacrifice and be sacrificed as our great high priest. Suffering is what taught Jesus what it is to be human. Suffering gives you and I, humans, insight into what it is to be Jesus. Suffering helps us understand Jesus. It certainly has me. I, I think you know, I don't think it's a mystery how much I love studying God's word. But if you ask me how I've grown closer to Jesus over the years, the things that have made a difference aren't so much the wows and ahas that God has revealed in his, world, uh, in his word, although, although there have been many. God has blessed me with, with so much richness and closeness and, and, and wonder studying his word. But the single way that I've grown the most in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, I think the way that most of us have grown and are growing is through the trials that he's allowed in my life. Trials that I can look you in the eye and say he's gifted me with. Example, I, I've read the story of the rich young ruler, I don't know, 100 times more? I thought I understood it. I really did. It's not like it's hard. I thought I understood it until someone I loved, someone I counted as family, looked at Jesus, looked at the world, and said, yeah, I'm good. I hear the gospel, I'm not willing to leave the world behind. No matter what I did, no matter what I said, his heart was set. And, and I, I already knew people make that choice every day. I'd seen people make that choice every day. But that day, I had a glimpse of the Savior's heart that I'd never had before. I had a glimpse of, of, of what it does to Jesus' heart when people that he loves make that choice. Because that day my heart broke in a different way. I tasted his tears. I, I experienced the grief that he feels when someone he died for chooses the world over the gospel. Another example. For how many years have, have, have we read about the scribes and the Pharisees? Again and again in every gospel. And every time, pretty much, that I'd encounter them in the Word, I'd get angry. These are people who knew the Word, who refused to see the Messiah spoken of so clearly in the world, in the Word, standing right in front of them. There's part of me that would just say, moron. I just, I just, I, my reaction was disgust and anger until I had people reject me. Until a couple years into my ministry back in New Jersey, I had people I was trying to love try to get me fired. <laughs> I'm trying with everything I've got to love. Heart, soul, mind, strength, all of the spirit-filled everything wasn't enough. 
Wanted me removed, wanted me replaced, because in their eyes I wasn't a pastor. I wasn't the pastor they wanted. I wasn't the pastor they expected. The love that I was giving wasn't the love that they had decided ahead of time they were wanting. And the, and the first time it happened, it's happened more than once, but the first time it happened, I, I expected to be angry. I, I, was, I was sort of bracing myself. I was waiting for rage. <laughs> and, and I can't say that there wasn't any anger, but, but, but the bit of anger I felt was, was, was overwhelmed. It was drowned out by this deep, deep sadness. This sorrow, that, you know, this realization, no matter what I did, I could do everything that I tried, I could not bridge the gap. Deep sorrow. And a deeper understanding that I'd ever had of Jesus as he looked over the city. As Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. He wept over those who killed the prophets, those who would hand him over to the torturers, those who would ask for him to be crucified. He wept over them. Every Good Friday, we read about Peter and Judas. Peter denying, Judas betraying. Most Good Fridays, we read about them. Some years, we don't, because what else is there to say? We're, we're very familiar with their stories. And I'm pr I, I, I was sure that I knew all about them. I'd get to a Good Friday, and I'd say, well, I don't have anything more to say about it. I've, I've taught everything I know to teach until I had someone deny me. Someone pretend, oh, I'd never had a relationship with you. I've got no attachment to your family. Until I had someone betray me, out and out burn me, spread lies about me, try to get people to turn against me, hurt my family. That, that brought a whole new dimension of understanding. And, and even that, it's, it's, that still wasn't the real lesson. The real lesson came trying to get my head back in the game afterwards. The real lesson came as I, as I wrestled with the very, very deep and real desire to run away from ministry and not look back. Just leave it forever because I didn't want to get hurt that way again. Only to realize at the Last Supper, Peter, sorry, Jesus loved Peter. He served Judas, he washed their feet. Jesus loved and served Peter and Judas, knowing everything that was about to happen. I'd heard it before, but I'd never really understood that getting close enough to watch someone's feet is close enough to get kicked in the face. And I realized, Jesus not only put himself in that position on that one night, and he not only put himself in that position for three years as they lived and traveled and served together, he puts himself in that position still every time he stoops down to minister to us. 
I could keep going, but you're tracking with me, yeah? Trials teach. Sorrow sanctifies. Sadness is not the wrapping paper that stands between us and the gift that God has prepared for us. It's part of the gift. Suffering is part of the gift. And it's the gift that gives us perhaps the greatest insight into the person of Jesus. Patrick, you're talking about relational trials. What about physical trials? What about financial trials? Those, those things are different. I agree. They're easier. At least for me, I'm a relational guy. For me, relational wounds are the deepest. But the, but the same process takes place, and the same relationship is cultivated through any trial. My friend Mike, elder at, at my home church, one of my first mentors, he's been with the Lord for, gosh, 20-some years now. Cancer came fast, came ruthlessly, painfully. I remember visiting him one night, and, and, that, and that's an indication of how quickly things got serious is, is that they waived visiting hours for him almost immediately. I remember visiting him one night, and he said, Patrick, I'm starting to understand Job. And I looked at him, because he had all kinds of wires and tubes and everything coming out of him, and I said, yeah, I bet you are. And he said, no, he, he grabs my arm. He says, no, I'm starting to understand Job. Last night, I really thought about cursing God. Last night, I, 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 I wanted to curse God and die. Thought about it. I said, and? He said, and I couldn't. Because through it all, I realized God loves me. I mean, God saved me. And when I got done being angry, I remembered that God is here with me. And, and, and he said, and, 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 and he's... He's here with me. I'm, I'm here with him. I'm present with him in, in, a, in, a, in a completely different way than I've ever been before. He looked at me and he said, you ever think about the fact that Job is a picture of Jesus? Forsaken by God, yet refusing to forsake God? And that wasn't a brand new idea for me, but Mike saw it. He owned it. And for, for, the, for the last month or two, I think two months of, of his life, the last several weeks, he lived it. He did more ministry those last two months from a hospital bed than he'd done in the previous two years. Counseling, writing, praying. Because something clicked. Through his suffering, he came to a deeper understanding of something that had been intellectual, academic. It became real. It became personal. He could say with, IG, with, with Jesus, Isaiah 50, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. He embraced the suffering. I don't know what you're going through this Christmas. I don't. I know some of what some of you are going through. I don't know everything that all of us are going through. But can I encourage you once more with, with our four points from this morning? Point one, whatever's going on, it's okay to say so. You don't, don't buy into that oughta, gotta, ho, 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 happy trip. Life is hard. The world is broken. 
Heaven and nature will sing God's praises, but they aren't yet. Right now, Romans 8.22, the universe is groaning, and we groan with it. When, Jesus? How long, Lord? We don't have to pretend that's not us, and we don't have to pretend that's not the world we live in. If people don't think that we see the world for what it is, they think we're delusional, and they won't see God in us overcoming the world. Second thing, even though the world is broken, even though our bodies are falling apart, I'm talking about me, our souls are being renewed daily and our future is secure. How do we know? Joy has come into the world, delivered us from the world, and we can look forward to joy, but at the same time, we don't have to wait for joy. We're indwelt with joy. Our inheritance is waiting, the down payment is here. That's point number three. God the Holy Spirit, who today enables us to sing joy to the world, has come to live in our hearts. And that joy doesn't depend on the world. It comes from being rescued from the world, filled with joy not of the world, and being used of God to share that joy that others might be rescued out of the world. And point number four, life even with its tribulations, even with its sorrow. Life is a gift. Being born is a gift. Being born again is a greater gift. And every single thing that happens to us, sin and suffering, God will redeem. Suffering in our lives will be a gift if we allow it to be. For the joy set before him Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. The cross didn't win. The garden didn't win. Satan didn't win. God won. Because all those trials did was teach Jesus more and more and more about the people that he came to die for. And all the trials in our life are meant to teach us more and more and more about Jesus who died for us. The love we get to have for him. The love we get to have for the people around us. Jesus. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. That we might appreciate your faithfulness through the pain, through the sadness, through the sorrow, through the everything that this world is. Nothing touches us without your permission. And the things that you allow are the things that you redeem. The things you permit are the things that you, loot, that you use. To mold us, to shape us, to teach us the love that you have for us, the love that you've placed in us.